and turn in your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 17 and verses 11 through 19. The healing of the lepers, at least one of whom was a Samaritan. Again with the title, and then there was one. The focus of Luke chapter 17 is upon faith in verse 5. We read, and the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And then in verse 19, and he, that is Jesus, said unto him, the Samaritan who came back and thanked him for healing him, arise and go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Leon Morris writes, the impossibility of our having a claim on God leads naturally into the story of a man who had gratitude for what God did for him. The gratitude was directed to God and indirectly to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in that way, he exercises faith. Now, the passage is a part of a larger context, beginning in chapter 9 and verse 51. Subsequent to the transfiguration of Christ, the Lord Jesus begins to set his sights and to move toward Jerusalem. And so this is a part of that journey as he travels to Jerusalem. As one writer has said, as with any long journey, travelers experience so much along the way that they may forget the destination and its purpose. Most who lose their way do so not by wrong decisions, but by drifting. And so here is a section that has Jesus moving toward Jerusalem, and yet it's filled with a number of incidents and experiences that teach us. Now, the geography is rather clear, and it's fitting for both Jews and Gentiles. Traveling to avoid entering Samaria itself, the Lord Jesus and the disciples travel along the frontier of two particular um, geographical location. In verse 11, and it came to pass as they were on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing along the borders of Samaria and Galilee. He was traveling between these two areas, not through. In other words, not through Samaria or through Galilee, but along the borders separating the two. John Gill, the Baptist of the 18th century, 
Calvinistic and Reformed, said he steered his course through the borders of both these countries. And as he passed, Samaria was on his right hand and Galilee on his left. And so he's passing between, and the goal, it would seem to be, at least on the surface, would be to avoid confrontation with uh, two different sets of people who didn't like each other very much and who really did not get along. Now, as I said before the reading of the scriptures, that this passage has so much to do with the healing of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. This passage echoes a healing and a saving story. Naaman was a foreigner healed by Elisha, and Naaman was converted. And here is a leper healed also from leprosy, and he's a Samaritan, and so he's not a part of the covenant people either. And so as we come to the passage this morning, even as we did last week, we see something of the necessity of God's grace and of God's mercy and its effect, not only upon those who come to faith, but also upon others. And so we'll notice this morning the effect that this healing had upon all 10 of the lepers, even as we will see when we return to 2 Kings chapter 5, the effect that this had again upon Naaman, but also upon Elisha's servant, Gehazi. So we want to notice then a number of things, nine actually, uh, about uh, the uh, mercy and the grace of God. First of all, in verses 11 through 12, notice the necessity of mercy. Again, I've already mentioned the locality. The locality has to do with passing between two geographical areas, both of which or either of which was filled with heretics and Gentiles. Those who would be callous toward any word from God and those who would clearly be selected or chosen and receive compassion. Again, they're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus would give his life as a ransom for many. And we come closer and closer and closer and closer to that particular occasion, and that which leads up to that occasion is also instructive for what will take place in Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Jerusalem because of his pity, his compassion, his love for lost sinners. And here we see once again the pity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy and the grace that he shows toward those who are poverty-stricken, 
Not so much financially, we really don't know anything about that, but certainly spiritually. The number of lepers doesn't seem to have any particular significance, except there's a great number of them. And whereas Jesus healed one in Luke chapter 5, now there are 10. The nature of this disease communicates great seriousness. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 detail for us and for anyone who cares to read the seriousness of uh, probably a cluster of skin diseases. Notice several things about this to reinforce also what we noticed last week. Notice that the problem was physical and and it was medical. Here were 10 who uh, suffered from uh, a skin disease that could prove dangerous, perhaps even fatal itself. It included what we now call Hansen's disease, but not necessarily exclusively. It could have been a number of um, skin diseases, and there was no cure for any of them. The misery was physical. The misery was also social. They had to keep their distance because the disease was considered to be contagious. It was also emotional because they had to separate themselves from even friends and relatives. There was a psychological dimension to this issue, isolated from family and friends. They could no longer live at home with those whom they loved. It was also spiritual. They were barred from the worship of God and they must remain separate from the people of God and the worship of God until examined by a priest who would declare them either healed or not healed. The priest didn't have the power to heal them, but he did have the authority to recognize whether healing had taken place or not. And the misery that is in view here is cultural as well. The misery transcended ordinary boundaries among people. There was at least one Samaritan. We're not told that they're all Samaritans, rather that the one who came back was a Samaritan. All they had was each other, and probably some were from Galilee, some from Um, um, from Samaria, and the one thing they had in common, and the only thing they had in common, was this terrible disease. So we, we look at the world in which we live, and we discover a number of different cultural settings. And uh, people don't always like to mix, except with their own kind, whatever their own kind might be. But there's one thing we all have in common. And we mentioned it last week. There's one thing that every member of the human race has in common, and that's the leprosy of sin. And so it doesn't matter whether one is from this part of 
the U.S. or another part or from our part of the world or another part of the world or our ages, vastly different, none of that makes any difference when we give thought to that which we all have in common, whoever we are. And that was the misery and the leprosy of sin. And misfortune, in this case, made for strange bedfellows. They had nothing else really in common. One writer said, on the frontier, that is in this area bordering two different geographical areas, on the frontier, frontier, he would be likely to meet with a mixed company of lepers. Their dreadful malady have broken, having broken down the barrier between the Jew and the Samaritan. And Melanchthon Jacobus, who was 19th century Presbyterian, wrote, bittersweet prejudices were dropped. And Jew and Samaritan banded together in their common misery. And so the necessity of mercy is widespread. The necessity of mercy includes all of them. Now secondly, in verses 12 and 13, notice the cry for mercy. Lepers are made up of, uh, um, uh, again, these various individuals and at least one Samaritan. Now notice a number of things about their cry for mercy. Their location is irrelevant. We're not told where it was except on the frontier somewhere. It doesn't really matter. It could have been anywhere between these two provinces, but would have included, since there's a reference to the Samaritan return, that it, it suggests that not all 10 were Samaritans. Their position is significant. They did exactly what the law required them to do, and that is they stood afar, afar off. And it symbolizes the distance of sin, that which separates us from God and that which separated them from Jesus. Their emotion is fervent. The ten are united. They're despondent. They have no hope. So it doesn't matter where they are even if we could locate where they were. Their position is significant, standing afar off. Their emotion is fervent. They're despondent. And the action is insistent. They lift up their voices. Usually lepers cried unclean, what they were required to do as they met other people walking and traveling. Unclean, unclean, unclean. But they don't cry unclean. They cry for mercy. 
that Jesus might do something for them. J.C. Ryle wrote, they cried earnestly for relief when a chance of relief appeared in sight. And so there's a necessity of mercy. They have absolutely no hope whatsoever at all. The cry for, verse, for mercy, lifting up their voices in the verb form there is very specific and it indicates an insistence uh, as they cry for help. Now thirdly, notice the treasury of mercy in verse 13. Who is it that they address? They address Jesus. And it's interesting that they call him Master. Typically, unbelievers referred to Jesus as teachers. It was his disciples who would call him and refer to him as master. They evidently knew something about him, something of his person, perhaps had heard something or even had witnessed something that he had done previously. In any event, they believed he was the right person And no one else was. He was the right person to do something for them. They evidently knew something about him. They asked specifically for mercy as if that was the very thing that he and he alone could comply with. They're quite specific in their request. Their request compassion, mercy, and help. Now Calvin makes makes an interesting observation here. He says, it is evident that all of them possessed some measure of faith. Not only because they implore Christ's assistance, but because they honor him with the title of master. Master. But notice the prudence that is also affirmed. While faith is assumed, remember that not all faith is saving faith. Matthew 13 describes various kinds of of faith in the parable that Jesus taught. And some faith, even according to the parable, is temporary faith. There's a crisis, and so we believe. Or there's an exciting experience, and so people believe. Calvin writes, above all, it is too common a disease that when we are urged by strong necessity, And when the Lord himself prompts us by a secret movement of the Spirit, we seek God. But when we have obtained our wishes, ungrateful forgetfulness swallows up that feeling of piety. Thus, poverty and hunger beget faith, but abundance kills it. So with regard to the unity and the activity of of the ten lepers, notice 
that their cry was purposeful. They determined to do something. They took initiative. It was Christological. They believed that Jesus could do something for them. It was deferential. It was humble and obedient. They did what they were told to do. Go show yourself to the priest. And the command for them to do something included a promise. And it was fruitful. All ten of them were healed. And it reflected the mercy of Jesus. Jesus performed the miracle. Now, fourthly, notice what we might call the legality of mercy. Or perhaps the legitimacy of mercy. Mercy is not sentimental. A feeling that that overcomes the, the presence of sin. Mercy is not sacramental. The ceremonial law pointed to spiritual realities, and we'll see this afternoon how easy it is to mistake the reality for the thing that the for the thing that the sacrament represents. They were to go to the priest to show himself, but the priest had no power to save them. He merely recognized or was called upon to recognize the reality, the presence of their healing. And mercy takes place in the context of substitution. We don't have time to turn to Old Testament texts, but offerings were to be made by the leprous person who had been healed. Sacrifices, substitution, even as we would come to see by the end of this gospel, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now, fifthly, notice the sovereignty of mercy. Go show yourself to the priest. Here is authority. It's the authority of Jesus and indirectly the authority of the priest to recognize the truthfulness or the reality of healing. The priest was not only someone who acted on behalf of God for needy sinners, providing substitution, but he was also what we might call the public health inspector in ancient Israel. After healing had taken place, the one healed would then go to the priest, not before. And so the command to go to the priest assumes and insists that healing had already taken place. And so on the part of the ten, or at least a part of the one, here is the obedience of faith. Jesus sees what has been done, and they see nothing. 
They were called upon to believe without evidence, go to the priest, and the priest will determine whether or not, not an individual, not any one of the ten, but rather it's the priest who would determine whether healing had taken place or not. Lenski writes, leprous as they were, these men were to go to their priests like clean men to be pronounced clean. That required stronger faith than ever in Jesus' healing power. The way in which to increase even such faith is to feed it with the word. Jesus gave these men his word. That too moved them to act. They would have been fools not to act on that word, to stand around only to debate and to rationalize about it. In only one way could they find out whether that word had power in it, the power of which they had heard so much. They must trust that word and go to the priests. That would show just what power was in that word. And Jacobus writes, This direction, therefore, to go thither before they were cured required great faith. They might have objected, why send us without the healing that is requisite? Why not cure us first? So many inquirers demand that they should have new hearts before they will go into Christ and cast themselves upon him. They wait for repentance, faith, conviction, etc. But they must go as they are or they can never be healed. Tom Lyon, in preaching from this text, once said, they came for mercy and they were told to go away. That's interesting. Came for mercy and they said, go, and Jesus says, go away. He went on to say, faith is a venture upon the credit of a promise. They were called upon to bring before eyes of the priest that which their own eyes had not seen. And that, doesn't that say something about the faith that we exercise even now? The eyes of faith are not the eyes of sight. We're thankful for dear loved ones who have passed into the presence of Christ recently. And they have eyes that truly see, whereas we live by faith and not by sight. Again, remembering that Jesus, not the lepers or the priests, would do the healing. And the priests would be witnesses. Notice that Jesus healed all ten. Sixthly, notice the display of faith. The lepers were healed, first of all, totally, that is, numerically. The entire quantity. 
The lepers are healed suddenly, immediately. Healing was not a process for them as if they took a series of pills or some such thing. Thirdly, the lepers are healed completely, thoroughly and perfectly. Fourthly, the lepers are healed what we might say thoughtlessly or inattentively, that is, without consideration of who they were or their character. And the lepers are healed silently, without fanfare. There's the display of the mercy that flows to them from God through Christ. Now, seventhly, notice the reply to mercy. It's marked by a number of things. The response to this act of Jesus was marked by minority. Not all ten returned. Only one of them did. And he was a Samaritan. More on that in a moment. It was marked by sensitivity, that is, familiarity. They they claimed to know something of Jesus, or, or he did, excuse me, as he bows and thanks God in the presence of Jesus. It's marked by minority, sensitivity, and spontaneity. He turned around and went back. Obviously, he had things to do, certainly one of them being restored to his family and to his friends, but he spontaneously turned back. And so here his reply is marked by minority, sensitivity, spontaneity, and activity. He turned back and he went. And fifthly, it's marked by a high Christology. In thanking Jesus, notice the language, in thanking Jesus, he glorifies God. Now, that's not to suggest that he knows or knew and understood everything that we do from our reading of the scriptures and the creeds of the Christian faith. I'm not suggesting he knew all of that, but he knew something. Enough to glorify God by thanking Jesus. It's almost as if there's a, there's, there's a Trinitarian sense. I shouldn't say almost as if. There is just a Trinitarian sense here. He recognizes that only God is to be thanked. How often have we said that? Because there's no one else to thank. He couldn't thank the doctors. He couldn't thank his Leprous friends, he couldn't thank his family members. There's only, there's only one person to thank, and that's God. And he does so as he confesses Christ. In other words, he confesses, it would seem, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his response is marked by minority sensitivity, spontaneity, 
activity, a high Christology, and piety, along with humility, reverence toward God, and falling on his knees. Now, the other thing that is suggested by the text and more than just suggested by the text. Here is his reply is marked by enormity. What do I mean by that? Just this. He was a Samaritan. Just as Naaman was a Syrian. Outside the covenant. And under the claims of the Old Testament had no, no title to grace, to mercy. Without rights, no merit. Here is a truth that is utterly profound. Here is one of the deep things of the Bible, the very character and the nature of mercy and of grace. And it anticipates the New Testament with the healing and the saving of Samaritans when the Jews did not believe. And we find throughout the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 1 all the way to the end, God's Mercy and his grace. The Jews did not believe, but the Gentiles did, and even the Samaritans, half-breeds, if you will. And apparently the ten here included Jews and Samaritans because he singled out by being referred to as a Samaritan, someone that who would be suspect and something of a heretic. One writer said, people who discern God at work through Jesus worship God at his feet. There's the reply to God's mercy, the response, the return of one, and the one is of all things, a Samaritan. Notice eighthly then, what we might call the insensitivity to mercy. Jesus receives the one, but then he speaks. And he speaks and he asks several things. Jesus responds to the situation by asking, we're not ten cleansed? He responds to the situation by asking, where are the nine? And then he raises a final question by saying, were none found that returned 
to give glory to God, save this stranger. And the word that is used there for stranger is an interesting word. And it means, and it, and it means literally, or is defined literally, one of another genus. You know, when we think of, of plants and animals and so forth. It's from another genus, all together different. Doesn't belong. Nine of them swallowed up God's favors without any feelings of piety. Consider all that God has done and sinners remain hardened and unconverted. How true it is and how frequent it is that once people get what they want and the crisis is over, they're never seen again until there's another crisis. And then they claim to believe and trust in their belief of sometimes many years before, but not in the one to whom they owe faith and trust. One writer wrote, one can experience God's grace in terms of general mercy and still not benefit fully from it because the response never moves beyond reception of kindness to the exercise of faith. Faith responds to God's goodness and publicly acknowledges God and Jesus, a response that the Samaritan illustrates. He confesses and he believes, Romans chapter 10. Lenski writes, majorities impress us too much. Majorities can go wrong as easily as an individual can go wrong. The decisive thing is the right, the true, and not the numbers. It is still true that God and one makes a majority. Notice ninthly and finally then, the irresistibility of mercy. It's testimony, it's, it's efficacy. Notice several things about this man, some of which we've already said. First of all, he was a sick man. He had an incurable disease. Again, a type of moral leprosy. A disease, not only of the body, but reflecting that disease of soul. He was a sick man. He was a stranger. He didn't belong. He was of another genus, of another people, another nation. He was a solitary man. He had faith. He alone had faith, and it draws attention to the singularity of grace. We can't ride the coattails of someone else. 
parent or a friend or other church members. He alone had faith as a sick man and a stranger. But notice, fourthly and most importantly, he was a saved man. In verse 19, Jesus says, And he said unto him, Arise and go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Literally, thy faith hath saved thee. Sozo is the verb that is used there, the common verb for the salvation of one's soul. Jesus not only healed his body, but also saved his soul. And the verb tenses that are used here are specific. He has it and he will not lose it. He has faith and responds faithfully to the mercy he has received. J.C. Rowell quotes another and he says, The nine others were already healed and hastening to the priests that they might be restored to the society of men and their life in the world. But the first thoughts of the Samaritan are turned to his deliverer. He had forgotten all in the sense of God's mercy and of his own unworthiness. And again, as I've already said, one author has said, when Jesus says your faith has made you well, the blessing certainly refers to some benefit other than that which all, including the other nine, had received earlier. When Jesus says your faith has made you whole or your faith has saved you, here is something this man received that the other nine did not. Or as this author went on to write, what we have then is a story of ten being healed and one being saved. Well, I leave you with two or three thoughts. First of all, to be thankless is to be clueless. It is the reversal of reality. Leland Riken writes, Ingratitude is a way of saying that God owes us whatever he gives us and that we owe him nothing in return. Thus it is a complete reversal of our real position before God, namely that he owes us nothing and we owe him everything. Ingratitude is an assault on God's glory. We do not give him praise that is deserved. Gratitude is a a distinguishing mark of grace. We might even say that it is the, the first impulse And it is the spring of all gospel obedience. Thanks be to God. Why? No one else to thank. 
and he ought to be thanked. Ryle writes, above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, guilt, and undeserving. This, after all, is the true secret of a thankful spirit. It is the man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality he deserves nothing but hell. This is the man who will be daily blessing and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well, excepting upon a root of deep humility. And then secondly from the text, in addition to the importance of a thankful heart, we learn from this passage that percentages are perplexing. Math may be mystifying, especially biblical math. It may be misleading. Who has a need for God's pity? Those those who are marked by poverty, spiritual poverty. 100% of humanity. But how many actually look beyond the daily benefits to see that there is more beyond the cure and see the salvation offered in Jesus Christ? How many have heard Christ say to them, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith has saved thee. Is it even 10%? I dare say that at least 90%, if not more, feel no need for the pity of Christ, for the compassion of Christ. Even Jesus Christ saved only one out of ten. Can we expect more? Maybe, maybe not. But let us not grow weary or depressed with small results. Even Jesus saved only one. John Gill wrote, There are many that are cleansed by the blood of Christ. His blood was shed for many for the remission of sins. By his righteousness he justifies many. At least there are many who profess themselves to be cleansed by him. And yet there are few, are but few, that glorify him by keeping close to the rule of his word, by giving up themselves to the churches of Christ, and by walking with them in the ordinances of the gospel. Christ's flock, which is separated from the world and walks in gospel order within the closures of it, is but a little flock. There are but a few names in Sardis who have not defiled themselves with corruption in doctrine and discipline. And these few are often such who have been the worst of men 
the vilest of sinners, from whom it has been least expected that they should glorify Christ. Percentages are perplexing, misleading. And then thirdly and finally, irresistible grace transcends insurmountable impediments. Disease, death, deviation from the truth, and even our descent from Adam are not final impediments to the reception of mercy. Here is a passage in a text that calls upon us for faith or to believe, trust, confidence that Jesus might say to us, arise, go thy way. Thy faith has made thee whole, literally, thy faith has saved thee. One writer says, what worse leprosy of superstition, ignorance, eager selfishness, or more glaring ingratitude had kept back the others. We do not know. What, if anything, is keeping you within the sound of my voice? from a thankful heart to God, not only for temporal mercies and temporal blessings, but the greatest of all mercies, the greatest of all blessings, the blessing of salvation. May we hear by faith the voice of Christ saying, thy faith has saved thee. Let us pray. Father, we Thank you for this text, this helpful reminder. And in the midst of all of the trauma and trial and difficulties that we face, may we persist in obtaining and maintaining a thankful heart. Thankful for your kind providence, but above all things, thankful for saving grace. As we come to Jesus, bend the knee, surrender the heart, we acknowledge the saving power of Jesus and also glorify God. May there be those who respond, have responded, and even now will respond to these offers of mercy and of grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.